Greetings, fellow listeners. My name is Philip Ellis, and you are at the point of learning with my good friend, Peter Horn. Pete and I just finished our one-year term as inaugural fellows in democratic and civic engagement at the University of Pennsylvania. At our last in-person meeting in Philly, I introduced Pete to another good friend of mine, Coach John Havlick, who's a retired Navy SEAL and West Virginia University Hall of Fame athlete. I'm a huge fan of Coach. It's not often that you find somebody who's so accomplished in life yet so down to earth. He just finished his doctoral dissertation, which is a fascinating study on how elite performers manage stress that he and Pete will be discussing in this episode. Coach has a lot of great wisdom to share, so I hope you enjoy the show. On today's show, retired Navy SEAL Captain John Havlick punctures Hollywood stereotypes about Navy SEALs. We're just a bunch of guys that go to work every day and and uh, and we have a unique mission and we train hard for it and we're ready to act when called upon. A Hall of Fame competitive swimmer himself, Havlick recently interviewed U.S. national team swimmers to study how they managed stress. Positive self-talk was huge. Swimmers often commented that, you know, when you get up on the block to race, Physically, almost all of you have done the same thing to get there. Now it's really about the mental side of who wants to win the most. And that's really the difference between those that are up on the podium from those that aren't on the podium. He also interviewed retired Navy SEALs with experience totaling 40 deployments over 139 years of honorable service. You train and work with your fellow operators, you get to a first name basis, you know their families, you know everything. So ideally, when you go into a very high threat environment, you want to perform at the highest level and you want to take care of your brother and uh, come home, everybody come home safely. We talk about the four strategies both high performing groups deploy in high stress situations. It's great advice for the rest of us too, so stick around. Captain John Havlick retired from the Navy in 2014 after more than 30 years of distinguished military service, nearly all of them in the Naval Special Warfare community, most commonly known to civilians like me as the Navy SEALs. John graduated from West Virginia University as a four-year letter to athlete, the first swimmer in WVU history to qualify for the U.S. Olympic swimming trials in 1980. He served as tri-captain of the first undefeated men's swim team in WVU history his senior year. In 2017, he was inducted into the West Virginia University Sports Hall of Fame. The following year, he was inducted into the Mountaineer Legends Society, WVU's version of a sports ring of honor. John's career in the Navy began in 1982 and included a full range of worldwide duties in the SEAL and Special Ops community, including an assignment at the Naval Special Warfare Development Group, the SEAL's most elite operational special mission unit. It's tough to know how to address this guy, a Navy captain known affectionately as coach to his comrades because he first enlisted while he was pursuing a job as swim coach and PE instructor. John Havlick also holds the academic rank of doctor. In fact, I first met him in Philly last April, the day he defended the doctoral study we're going to be talking about today. 
Captain Havlick also earned an MA in National Security and Strategic Studies from the Naval War College in Newport, Rhode Island, and an MS in Education from the University of Pennsylvania. The book he co-authored with Bill Treasurer is called The Leadership Killer, Reclaiming Humility in an Age of Arrogance. It focuses on humility as the fundamental leadership attribute. Havlick is also the CEO of JRH Consulting. Based in Tampa, Florida, he consults with individuals and teams on building and leading high-performance teams. Your military portfolio includes deployments across the globe in the SEALs and Special Ops, including an assignment at the Naval Special Warfare Development Group, whereas they are known when I was a kid, SEAL Team 6. And that was the group responsible in 2011 for the killing of Osama bin Laden, for example. It's the most elite and top secret special mission unit. So let's start there. Tell us everything. I wish I could tell you a lot, but I really can't. I was trying to catch you off guard by opening with that, but well played, Captain. <laughs> no, but, but seriously, because they're so uh, badass, to use a technical term, Navy SEALs have ranked high in the U.S. public and movie-going imagination since I was little. Uh, one of my first G.I. Joe action figures that I wanted to get was Torpedo, and he was the SEAL. Um, in, in, in your experience, what is, what's one of the biggest misconceptions people have about Navy SEALs? Most of the guys that I know and worked with are pretty quiet and humble and uh, just go about and do their job. It's just, uh, it's just another day at work. You know, we, um, yeah, we're in pretty good shape and, and, you know, we're all ruggedly handsome <laughs> and, uh, you know, it's part of the being a seal, but uh, I, I think we're just normal people. And I, and maybe that, that concept has, uh, has been overplayed. We just, we do a unique job and we're heavily trained and we're pretty good at it, uh, but we're just like you're just like your neighbors or uh, your your family members. You know, we we're pretty simple people, and that's I think that's what's been forgotten. I and that's what I found across special operations. It's you know this we have a moniker of the quiet professionals. Now some will argue that though all the books that have been out and the movies and and some of the other stuff that's been going on. Uh, that maybe has been taken a bit too far. But in, in general, like I said, we're just a bunch of guys that go to work every day and, and, um, and we have a unique mission and we train hard for it and we're ready to act when called upon. You were the first swimmer in the history of West Virginia University to qualify for the U.S. Olympic swimming trial. And you also served in your senior year as tri-captain of the first undefeated men's swim team in school history. When I ask this question when it comes to coaching, did swimming come pretty easily to you or were there parts of it that you really had to work on to be competitive? Well, I think, uh, you know, when I was swimming, I, I had a great opportunity to swim for some really good coaches. I mean, even... As a young kid growing up, uh, the coach I had at the at the Naval Academy at the age group team there was outstanding, you know, and just started showing me the traits, the characteristics of being a good coach, you know, and being there to help you improve in the water. That was, you know, and whether it was mostly it was speed, you know, I want to swim fast, you know, you want to win. And that, okay, how do you do that? And help me coach, 
so he helped me in technique and uh, to perform in the water, which was uh, what I wanted at that time, you know. And then I went to college. I had a really good coach at, at West Virginia uh, where I swam competitively, and and he was very good. He he gave me the opportunity to develop, which maybe um, it was kind of like a second father to me. He put me, he gave me an opportunity, and he said, "This is what I expect from you." and and so whether it was staying in school or performing in the water, uh, he kind of let me uh, succeed or fail, you know, and he provided me the guidance and he was there to help me if, if things didn't go right. And then I had a couple other coaches that I swam with uh, during the summers between uh, academic years where I'd go and train. And they, one of them was uh, the Olympic coach for at the time, this was in the late 70s, uh, he had a very, uh, was, uh, he had quite a lot of swimmers and he has a great history of, in USA swimming. And yeah, I just, I learned a little bit of everything from all those, all those coaches that I had to, com- to do, compete and do well in the water. And then once I was done my eligibility, I, I wanted to give back and share and help others succeed. Uh, now that now that I was more of a coaching or a figurehead than I was an actual competitor. So I wanted to move on to the real focus of what I wanted to talk to you about because I think it's just, you know, the, the study that you did for your doctoral work is fascinating and groundbreaking because it involves both of these dimensions, uh, which is to say elite military operations and uh, competitive, uh, in this case, swimming. Um, so the, the full title of your doctoral study is Showtime, a comparative analysis of how U.S. Special Operations Service members cope with deployment stress and how U.S. senior national team swimmers cope with competition stress to maximally perform. I imagine, given your background, though, that neither deployment stress nor competition stress is foreign to you. I had uh, close to 50 years of experience with competition or performance stress uh, and deployment stress, you know, with my swimming days and then 30 plus years in the Navy, conducting several overseas deployments and combat zones. So um, I've been exposed to it and you know, I've had to learn to deal with it and to do my job and do it well. And so um, the opportunity came up when I was at the University of Pennsylvania for the doctoral study it's this opportunity to do this, and so in the study, this just seemed the natural to me. So, I I think I have I think I was in the perfect position to do the study, and and I have a lot of experience in it. And that's and this is and, and, and I mentioned that it was groundbreaking. It was groundbreaking because although it seems like a, a, a natural kind of comparison, if you're trying to think about high stress environments to take elite athletes, elite special ops, uh, and compare them. Really, you found that nobody had done that before. And so the groups that you're dealing with are members of the, was it 2021 U.S. Senior National Team? So you interviewed a group of them and you interviewed a group of retired 
uh, special ops military personnel. That's correct. Yes. Uh, my When I was looking at the study, I, I did a pretty exhaustive uh, scouring of the scholarly databases, and I found a lot of parallel studies on high-performing groups, whether it be athletes or doctors or I found parallel studies about how they handle stress, how they cope with stress, get ready to perform, but none that I had found that actually compared these two elite groups. Okay, and one of one of one of my research, uh, one of the past studies said it'd be nice if uh, how the U.S. Special Operations personnel trained to handle stress could be shared with. Sporting, you know, sporting federations as they prepare their athletes to compete at the highest levels, whether it's the Olympics, World Championships. So that kind of served as the basis of why I wanted to do this and helps start forming the study. Um, what I what I did ultimately ended up coming down to was uh, members of the 2021-2022 U.S. National Swimming Team. Uh, got uh, several Olympians I got to talk to and. Uh, and then retired Navy SEALs, and that was, um, I wanted to do an active side of the house, but there was some pushback from the Department of Defense and even the SEAL headquarters itself about uh, interviewing active duty folks. So I, re- I did, uh, I reached out to several colleagues and uh, talked to them, and the data I got was fantastic because I was drawing the, the folks I interviewed had completed over 40 deployments over 139 years of honorable service. So I think I got some really good data from both groups, from the interviews of both groups. You found, and we're going to talk about each of these uh, findings, but the, if I, I'm going to tick off the four at the outset to kind of you know frame it for people listening. You found that national team swimmers and special ops personnel shared four key understandings, or they maybe didn't express it this way, but this is the way <laughs> that you, uh, you know, presented um, and synthesized what they were telling you in these interviews, four commonalities about how to excel under high stress conditions. So first, they had absolute trust in their training. Second, they adhered to a strict routine. Third, they focused only on what they could control and fourth, they used healthy and adaptive distractions. So we're going to we're going to work through those because part of what's um, you know exciting and interesting is that you know not only could the stuff that you found out about the military be useful for the training the athletic training organizations who were interested in your work, but you recognized as you were working on this that these are ideas about excelling under high stress situations that anybody in a high stress situation could rely upon. Um, and so it's useful, useful for lots of people, even if you're not in the most elite tier of these particular fields. So, so let's start with training. Um, what is absolute trust in their training look like? Well, they, the basic, the basic uh, commonality between the two is they both, both groups have put it so much time, whether in the pool or in uh, the weight room, you know, and the seals in their buds training. The but buds is that the base is it basic underwater? Yeah, basic underwater demolition seal training. 
yeah, sorry about that. Uh, That's all right. But, uh, you know, you start there, you lay the groundwork, you know, you, you learn the basics of what it, what a SEAL does, okay? And then you go to your SEAL team, and as you get ready to deploy, you're going to go through a very intense pre-deployment training cycle, and where you add more complex, more intense training, where you start bringing in supporting units that are going to deploy with you, and, you know, start working together, because really, you don't want to wait to get on the battlefield to work with somebody for the first time. And this, so what they're doing now is very intense, and they actually train with the units they're going to deploy with before they actually go overseas. So would those also be naval units or would those be units for other branches of the military as well, or it depends? Well, it's it's a little combination of both, but in, in really in special operations, it's it's the joint environment. You're using assets from all the services. And so you may, uh, you know, may use Navy ships or submarines or aircraft, you know, you're going to Definitely use Army helicopters. You're going to use uh, U.S. Air Force supporting assets. Uh, you name the gamut, it's out there. And so if it's available, you're going to use it. And so the, the idea to get effect, you know, not wait until you get over in theater or wherever, the, wherever you're deploying to is to try to train in CONUS or continental United States to work together, get some semblance of, hey, I know you. It's not the first time, yeah. The worst part is going in, going in and do something, and you meet the pilot for the first time. It's like, hey, can you do this job? You know, <laughs> who are you? And you know, if you've already worked through that and uh, beforehand, it's it's a little more comforting factor. Hey, it brings the stress down. Hey, I've worked with these people. I know they can do the job. Stress level comes down. I'm ready to go out and operate. And so that's Seal Side House with the swimmers. You know, they they put so much time into the water and you know, working on their basic fundamentals and their skills with their coaches and their teammates. And, and they're so ingrained in what they do and what time they put into it. They, that they, they know they've done the requisite preparation to get ready to perform at a, at a, at a major international competition. So in both cases, you draw that all together, whatever, whatever group you're in, Hey, I've done this training. I am ready to perform. Let's go do it. You talk to us, the swimmers, uh, they they try not to change anything. Um, they try not to change anything as they get closer to a competition. You know, they've worked on their fundamentals. They've done what they've needed to do. When they when they get when they start their process of tapering, that's uh, when they start resting physically and emo- mentally and emotionally. You know, as they pr- start prepping their bodies and minds to compete, they tend to stick. To their routine, and this is why all the findings start coming all together, is they stick to their routines that has worked on the past and gets them into that mindset that I've done all my training, now I'm doing the things I need to prepare to get myself ready to step on the block and, and do the best race I can. And those events I can't control and you talk to the swimmers, especially the Olympics, there's events they can't there's just things they can't control, media requests. Um, transportation, where they where they sleep in the Olympic Village, size of the bed, things like that. There's just little things they can't control, but can add up to the stressors that could affect their performance. And they just 
it goes to finding three. They just control those things I can control. And the same thing with the seals is you can't always control what the enemy does. You know, they have a, they have a say in what's going to happen, you know. And so you train to the best of your abilities to prepare for what you need to do. You're in your planning. We do a lot of what we call what ifs. What if this happens? What if this, uh, you know, extreme events that may arise that at least we've thought about it and we have kind of come up with a plan of action in case that arises. But you can't plan for everything. In either case, you can't plan for everything. So you mentioned, just to, to hang out on two for a second, you, you mentioned that, uh, you know, tapering is this process of getting ready uh, for swimmers uh, so that you're not like, you know, obviously swimming as hard as you can, as long as you can, right up until the day of event, right, that you're, you're preparing for it. So tapering, that makes sense. What kind of routine um, for, uh, uh, for, the, for the SEALs or maybe especially in deployment, but what is, what is, what does a strict routine look like? Well, I mean, most the big change is always uh, most of the special operations type events happen at night. And so really one of the first things you have to do is, or what we did is you have to get on a night routine, you know, and where most, whereas a lot of people work during the day, you know, even though you're overseas, there's always a 24 hour seven process going on but you'll find in a lot of organizations the heaviest amount of participants or people that are working is during the day you know and flip it all around with special operations most of their operations are going on at night you know and so they're sleeping during the day or they're resting or they're planning or they're coordinating and so there's a reversal right there that's not used to the norm of what you're doing back in in the states you know so you have to get into that mindset and what we call what we do in the military is a big thing is called our battle rhythm and it's really defines everything you have to do for a day you know to get you ready to get you through the day and it kind of outlines all your events and it def really defined battle rhythm defined for me when I got up and when I went to bed you know <laughs> and everything else in between I tried to fit it in uh, the outside meetings uh, outside coordination um and then you know when do i go eat uh, when do i work out when uh, do i call home uh, all those little things that are important to you but may not be important to the war effort you try to mix it all together and find that that battle rhythm that routine that gets you going and i found i think a lot of people would back me up on this is that the sooner you get over to um a deployment area and you get on your battle rhythm it really brings the stress down because deploying into an unknown area on and deploying brings stress just by the deployment factor itself and then you get into a, a area where the stress level stress level arises because they am deployed in a battle zone or a battle area or a combat area you know and then hey i may go out and do something and you're the stress level goes way back up, but it comes down to that baseline level. So you you have to find deployment seems to be a sustained stress level and it, with peaks and valleys of when you do operations and not vice when you're back home 
when things are a little bit more and more normal. So, for example, and despite my opening question, I'm really not trying to prompt you to divulge military secrets. Um, but like, for, like, what would be standard if you knew that you had? And I, you know, I, I know it doesn't work like this. But let's suppose we're going to have a mission ten days from now. Um, obviously a night mission. Like how long before that would I want to be shifting into my battle rhythm and maybe sleeping accordingly or trying to adjust? You said as soon as possible, right? But like what would be the minimum advisable time? Like a few days in advance? Would you want to be for a week? Or like, I think, you know, I think the swimmers, even when I was swimming, um, like if you were, if you trained on the East Coast and your major meet was on the West Coast, you tried to get into that r routine and adjust your training schedule so that, hey, I'm swimming at the time I'm going to swim on the West Coast, you know. So that may be an adjustment to your workout hours. You know, you're finding that rhythm so that when when you make that transfer over from East Coast to West Coast, it's not it doesn't affect your body, that your circadian rhythm, all that other stuff. You're ready. You've already done that. Hey, I'm already into this cycle. And that's. And so they, we were doing that in swimming. It may, may not have been, we're not going to a battlefield, but we started our tapers. We would start, hey, we're gonna, we're gonna change our workout routines a little bit because instead of swimming at three o'clock in the afternoon, you're gonna be swimming at noon on the West Coast. We're gonna have to adjust our workouts here to get you on that pace so your body starts getting used to that cycle. And, uh, and that's kind of, that's why I say when, when you want on deployment, the sooner you got on that battle rhythm, the better off you were to start preparing for 10 days. That's a long time. <laughs> I mean, there's, that, there's, some, there's guys I know that deployed and they turn over and they were out the next night, you know, conducting operations. So it's just if you've got an opportunity like that for 10 days of preparation, the sooner you get into it, the better off you are. Hey there, it's Philip again. As you might suspect, Pete tends to work the fact that he makes a podcast into casual conversation. On a Zoom call last fall, we were checking in and catching up, and Pete mentioned that he just released an episode on how to write the college application essay. Look, this was a month, about a month before the public launch of ChatGPT, but let me tell you, it's still good advice. I listened to the episode as the father of a high school senior who was spending months writing and revising these types of essays. And let me just tell you, that's when I started supporting Point of Learning. If you agree with me that this podcast provides valuable, carefully presented information about what, how, and why we learn in a wide range of subjects from school leadership to sociology, to the intersection of stress and sports and special ops in this conversation with Coach Havlick. Consider joining me in supporting this work. You could do it monthly or make a generous one-time donation like I did last fall. Although, this ad copy is reminding me that it might be a good time for me to re-up. Well, anyway, it's worth it. So click the link to the show page to learn more about contributing. And now, back to the show. What I found with the swimmers and the seals the commonality was, hey, I did the training. I believe in it. I'm ready to perform. I can only control the events that I have influence over, and I can't worry about the rest of them. And I kind of asked one of the swimmers, 
I said, uh, I said, what was it like to walk out on the pool deck at the Olympics? <laughs> I said, because I'm curious. I, you know, it's got to be a huge event, stressful. I mean, here it is, it's the pinnacle of competitive swimming. And he goes, I don't know. I just dumbed it down to uh, the way I could control it. And I said, can you explain that further? <laughs> and, and, and they said, no, I can't. I just, it would work for me. I just, I just brought it down to the level that I could manage, whether that was just walking from the ready room to the, de- the right block and getting ready to swim. It was, you, it was, it took me, I was like, man, that's amazing how you can do that. <laughs> Cause I would think that's the most stressful time of, uh, you know, I'm walking, I'm on the pool deck. This is what I worked out for. This is what I made it for. Now I'm representing my country at the biggest swimming event in the world. And I just dumbed it down to my level. How do you do that? (laughs) So whatever, like, you know, it just kind of highlights a lot lot of what you do to handle stress or to cope with stress is very individualistic. Well, and literally focusing on, you know, so I wonder, I, I don't suppose that that swimmer was staring at a lot of people in the stands, you know, for example, during that walk, you know, from the locker room to the, to the starting block or, you know, that probably they were focused maybe on the pool or, you know, kind of rather than, you know, taking it all in. If you watch and I, I didn't break down specifically in what they, what they did and didn't do, they did identify a few things, but a lot of them, it comes into finding for those healthy and adaptive distractions, you know, Hey, I've got my music on, you know, they, they, a lot of them wear their little, uh, their heads, their headphones, you know, and they're just pumping music or they're listening to something, just something that distracted them from the enormity of the event, you know, help them really to better relate to what they had to do. And so if you watch a lot of the swimmers, when they come out of the ready room, they've got the, the headphones on they don't hear the crowd until they take off the headphones. 20,000 people, you're you're going to hear them. That's normal, kind of what the, the normal audience is for a swimming event at the Olympics. So uh, you may hear it a little bit more in the water, but the pre-race stuff, they they work on those routines. What? Hey, what have I done in the past to do this? I throw my headphones on. I put my goggles on. I focus on the water. I don't think about what my competitor. I don't watch my competitors, what they're doing, how they're preparing. And then when it gets very quiet, when at the start of the race, so they may not even hear 20,000 people screaming, uh, getting ready for them, you know. I'm struck that in both of these, uh, in both of these contexts, the military context and the swimming context, you do have this team dimension. They're in it together. Um, does the aspect of having the other teammates, people who are going through the same thing as you are, who have your back in a certain sense, uh, who understand it is that you know is that a dimension that they you know that they spoke about as well well the swimmers talked an awful lot about the stress and the pressures of being part of team usa and uh they know the you know the past history of success of usa swimming and uh and they have a lot to carry on that's a tradition that has carried on from team to team to team and the new team feels that and they know it and that they're just by being on Team USA, there's a huge expectation of success that comes with it. And so they 
that is, you know, you're talking not just a team, you're talking a nation. And uh, they and they know that, and that's part of the deal, and what they have to accept as being part of the national team. And if they need work on that, um, they have there are sports psychologists there that, that the USA Swimming offers up there is help that they seek. But there is tremendous team and country pressure uh, for being a part of the U.S. national swimming team for the seals. It's always been about your your brother, you know, your brotherhood having their back. You don't want to let them down. Um, that's why it's closing it. It's a very closing it environment, and uh, and you you learn, you work, you train and work with your fellow operators. You get to a first name basis. You know their families. You know everything. So ideally, when you go into a very high threat environment, you you want to perform at the up at the highest level and you want to take care of your brother and uh, come home, everybody come home safely. Thinking about how you translate uh, these things, um, you know, to somebody who is not in a, you know, one of these elite environments. Well, I think the best, best story I can tell you is I, I applied everything I've learned uh, and applied it into contexts of being a student. Uh, I use the story of my final semester in the Penn CLO program and final academic block and uh, you know, all the work that comes with that. And then I had to finish up my master's and then I had to do my comprehensive exams or papers all in a very short amount of time just to finish the program and then be able to go on to the dissertation phase of it. And so um, I was kind of freaking out. I was losing sleep. Uh, I was trying to figure out how I was going to do all this. And and one of a couple of my classmates just, uh, I called him, talked to him, and I said, what are you doing? And how are you handling the same pressures? And, and they, they kind of explained what they were doing. But, you know, for me, they were like, look, John, you've, you've gone through harder things in your life. You can, you can figure this out. And so I kind of, I kind of just said, okay, I'll, I'll sit down and map out what I need to do when it needs to be done. You know, how am I going to get through this semester and knock out all this work? And so what I did was, uh, I just kind of came, sat down and I applied, uh, a couple sayings that I used in seal training to help me get through school. <laughs> and so I, I took uh, the SEAL motto is the only easy day was yesterday. And I changed that to say the only easy paper was the last one submitted. I had the training. I, I definitely had the training in SEALs. I had training at Penn, you know, to, to do the dissertation. I had, I got myself in a routine, which I, I've carried a routine. I learned young, when I was a young swimmer, carried me through the SEALs in military career, carried me through the dissertation. I, I set up a routine uh, to get through and complete the school. And then I, I can only control what I can control. And those were those smaller segments instead of the, the enormity of the big project. I can't graduate in May without doing the work in January, all the things that in between. And so, and then I just use healthy distract and adaptive distractions Working out has always been something big for me. Um, for SEALs, it's 
it's our main healthy and adaptive distraction, you know. And so swimming, uh, just taking, doing some self-care things that uh, help me distract from, hey, I got to go and write another 20 pages in chapter four, you know. I, he was like, well, I, I can go out and take a bike ride. I, I can go walk down, uh, you know, the boulevard down here by the bay and just get some fresh air. So anything that distracted away, you know, it really helped me like I said, break down the enormity of a big project into the smaller segments I can control and still produce quality work. And I said, if I can take those findings in context of being a SEAL and into a student, then I believe my findings from what I did can be used by anybody in any profession, any gender, any sex thing, because stress is prevalent in all aspects of life. You know, you want to be a good parent. You want to be a good father, mother, teacher. As we've been talking about this, it just occurs to me that so many of these things um, have to do with have to do with mindset, have to do with belief, your state of mind, your approach to it. Um, so that, you know, for example, when we're talking about, you know, having trust in your training, it's the difference between saying, well, I've been trained, but I don't know how good it was. What do these people know? You know, like, you know, maybe, you know, maybe it won't work for me as opposed to say like, no, I've got this. I know how to do this. You know, like that's the, that's the, that's the trusting mentality. Um, or focusing on what you control. That's a real, that's a mental exercise as much as, I mean, it's, it's almost exclusive. That one is almost exclusively a mental exercise because it's to say like there are, there are these things that I care, care about or I'm worried about, but you know, that they're out here and they could turn themselves into, um, you know, racing thoughts or anxiety, you know, about, you know, what I can actually do, but I'm going to bring it back and, you know, and take a breath and recognize that this, this, this is the thing that I can uh, have some kind of direct influence and control over that's what I'm going to, that's what I'm going to focus on. I can't worry about the rest of this stuff that may be important to me, but I can't let it take up my headspace right now. You know, a lot of this has to do with a mental exercise and, and, and kind of developing that mental stamina, that mental endurance. And I imagine there's a certain amount of self-talk in this, right? That like, just say like, I've got this, I trained for this, or you've got, you know, like. Yeah, positive self-talk was huge in both groups that I studied. The mental aspect, you know, swimmers often commented that, you know, when you get up on a block to race, physically, almost all of you have done the same thing to get there, you know. And now it's really about the mental side of who wants to win the most, you know. It's, and it's hugely mental. And, uh, and that's really the difference between those that are up on the podium from those that aren't on the podium, you know. And one of the findings I had, one of the, seals actually commented uh just that confident self-talk everything was positive self-talk about what was about to happen and just keeping the negative out all that kind of positive self-talk really would lower the stress response the negative was just i would really go out of my way to keep the negative out and i think that pretty much summed up that summed up with the seals, but it's the same thing with swimmers is they, you know, it's, it's a natural thing to do, especially during their taper when they're re, uh, 
fine-tuning everything and getting ready to race, there's a lot of, a lot of self-doubt. Hey, have I done enough? Uh, you know, have I really done enough? And you know, that's normal. I think you talk to any athlete when they're getting ready for a, a big performance is they're going to look back and say, hey, did I do everything I needed to do to be ready to perform at my best? And I heard that throughout the swimmers, and they, they did their best to folk, try to push that out of the way. Yes, I've done that. And I'm ready to race, and, and then just keep that negative self-talk out. It was huge. It, they, everybody talked about that. Everybody I interviewed talked about it. That's it for today's show. Thanks so much to Coach Havlick for joining me to talk about his study. You can learn more about him and his work at CoachHavlick.com, which is linked on the show page. Thanks, as always, to Schaefer James for intro and outro music. Special instrumental versions of two more of his songs found their way into today's episode. See music notes on the show page for those titles. To learn about new titles of new songs Schaefer seems to drop every time I turn around, explore SchaeferJames.com. Finally, thanks to you for listening and supporting this show any way you can. One free way to support this project is to share an episode with somebody who might especially like it. If you can think of just one person who might appreciate these tips on how to function under extreme stress, please pass it along. It will mean most coming from you. If you listen on Apple Podcasts especially, please take a moment to rate and review this show. Five stars. If you're not yet on the Point of Learning newsletter list, it's absolutely free and only comes out when I drop a new episode so I promise not to crowd your inbox. Point of Learning is written, recorded, edited, mixed, and mastered by me here in sunny Buffalo. I'm Peter Horn, and I'll be back at you just as soon as I can with a fresh take on what and how and why we learn. See you then. Is there anything you would have liked me to ask that I did not ask, or is there anything you want to circle back to? Or I mean, there's a lot of stories I could tell you. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, I mean, getting shot by another seal—that was a good one. <laughs> so, uh, did you say? Did Did you say getting shot by another seal? Yeah, you got shot by another seal. Yeah, in training. Yeah, that was a <laughs> that was experience. I just don't know what kind of show we want to have. Now, would something like that be what's called friendly fire? Or is that different? Oh, there's a word for it, but I, I don't know if I could say it on the podcast. <laughs>